If it's your first time with us, we're so glad you're here today. We pray that uh, we would be a family for you. Uh, we, we truly believe we are a church family, uh, and so we pray that we would be able to be that for you. Before we jump in today, I do want to stop and celebrate last week. You know, we had 47 college students stay for our college luncheon. Yeah, to hear about how they can leverage their life. Uh, and now, both now and after college, it's, it, was, it was a big day for us last week. We talked about short-term, mid-term, uh, and long-term missions. Uh, we talked about how students can leverage their career. And we also rolled out uh, internships and residencies that college students can be a part of, both in college and out of college. You know, God is working in powerful ways on USF's campus, uh, and we want to pour fuel on that fire. Uh, we're praying for future missionaries, church planters, and kingdom-minded leaders to graduate and live zealously for the Lord for the next 60 to 70 years of their life. Um, we're praying that our church would be a leadership factory of kingdom movers, both here in Tampa and around the world. In New City, uh, please hear me loud and clear on this. This is not just a college thing. Okay, this is a church-wide thing. You know, God is moving through our church, and we want to do whatever we can to steward as best we know how the way in which God is moving. You know, we're praying for 30 families over the next year to come to Christ or to simply be enlisted into God's mission here. Uh, th that's about two families per family. It's a crazy, bold, audacious thing. And I know it won't just happen uh, without us praying and laboring, but there's no doubt about it, we need the Spirit of God to move. And this is not for the fame or the name of New City. This is simply just a longing to steward well what God is doing here. We're praying this, we're praying for this, uh, because we need people who are zealous for the Lord to invest in the next generation and help provide long-term stability for our church. God is moving among the Gen Zs in our church, and we need the millennials and the Gen Xers and the baby boomers to model and teach perseverance and long suffering and what it looks like to walk with the Lord. Uh, we're praying for 30 families because we want to see many, as many kids as we can become kingdom leaders and movers 5, 10, 15, uh, and 20 years from now. Uh, and this is not just a college and families thing. We're praying that our young pros, those without kids, can leverage their life and their career to reach one of the largest demographics in our area. We're praying for them to be kingdom leaders and movers right now. You know, uh, get, get this, two years ago, uh, we had about five college students in our church. Now we've got well over 50. A lot of them are on spring break, so we could be praying for them. Something to really be celebrating. But by this time uh, next year, just dream with me, uh, what, what can God do with, with our college students, families, and young pros and retirees? Like, what would it look like to see whole families all together go through the baptismal waters? What would it look like to see more students discipled and enlisted into God's mission? Like, what special community can continue to be formed and developed among our young pros, uh, where their coworkers can come in and see that there is more to life than climbing the corporate ladder? Yo, I believe with all of my heart that God is going to do something really special. Like we're just on the brink of something that, uh, like, of something that I can, I can kind of see it on the horizon. I really believe it can happen. But I want you to hear me on this. If what we see in our passage today isn't true of our church and our leaders and our pastors and our people, this likely won't happen. Because if what we see today isn't true, then it becomes all about our glory and not God's glory. There is a different type of kingdom that God is building, and it's not a kingdom of mighty and powerful men and women. Being God-honoring kingdom movers, like we're praying for here at our church, doesn't look like becoming the mightiest and the best. No, not at all. Actually, it looks like becoming meek and lowly. 
It looks like becoming smaller and God becoming bigger. It looks like our King Jesus, the King of God's kingdom, which leads us to our main idea. Kingdom movers model after God's humble King. So that said, I want you to think with me about one specific well-known historical king. Uh, Maybe we could call him a kingdom mover, but the opposite of what we're talking about. You know, a little over 300 years before Jesus walked the earth, there was a famous military leader and king named Alexander the Great. He was known for advancing and moving his earthly kingdom. Uh, He died at the age of 33 after 13 years of one of the greatest military conquests the ancient world had ever seen, never losing a battle. He and his uh, military took over cities and kingdoms and empires, naming 70 cities after himself. He even named one after his horse. You know, one of the unique things that he did during his reign was he, he meshed cultures together and he allowed cultures for over, to overlap with each other. And I, but I want you to put on your history hats for a second and simply just think back to how frequently political borders and cities and lands were regularly changed throughout history. In essence, whoever had the biggest and best military uh, had the greatest kingdom. Like military strength and power showed stability, it showed safety and economic prosperity. Having great military leaders was something to celebrate. And in Jesus' day, over 300 years after Alexander the Great, uh, the cultures, they were still overlapped, and the people of Israel, they were under Roman rule, uh, but both cultures were still, they were uh, preserved, causing some conflict between the nation of Israel and Roman rule. And I want you to think about this with where we are in the book of John. Because remember, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus has a death wish out for him because he was a threat to Roman rulers with them wondering, will the nation of Israel, will they come back and regain power? But Jesus has been dodging all of this because, well, he's God uh, and he can do that type of thing, saying my hour, regularly saying my hour has not yet come. Uh, and then three weeks ago, we saw that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11 which totally expedited Jesus's death warrant along with Lazarus. Uh, They wanted Lazarus dead as well. But others, specifically the nation of Israel, they wanted to crown Jesus as king. They saw Jesus as their savior. But as we'll see today and as other gospels show us, they wanted Jesus as their political savior that would help them regain their power and, and regain the kingdom of Israel. They wanted their Messiah to come in with a sword and a crown of rubies to rebuild their earthly kingdom, not be pierced with nails and and crowned with thorns to to be building a heavenly kingdom. Jesus came to build a kingdom, but not the type of kingdom that they expected. So in our passage today, we're going to see a turning point in the Gospel of John. We're going to see that King Jesus, he is a different type of king, building a different type of kingdom. He's not like Alexander the Great or King Herod. And as we know, he was not crowned with rubies. No, he came uh, to be a kingdom mover, uh, but he came doing it with peace and humility. So we're going to be in John chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 12. And just to point out, at this point in the book of John, uh, we're five days away from Jesus's bloody, grueling, torturous crucifixion, uh, where he would be nailed to a cross and die which puts us full speed ahead as a church to Easter, because as we know, Jesus didn't stay dead. No, he rose from the dead, rose from the grave. Well, let's look at John chapter 12, starting in verse 12, to see a picture of Jesus, the humble king of God's kingdom. This is what it says. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming in Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They crowd, uh, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was, the, uh, was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So I'm going to stop there for now. Um, again, uh, in the book of John, we're five days away from Jesus' death uh, and a week from his resurrection. Uh, but today, uh, today for us is not Palm Sunday on our calendar, but it is Palm Sunday in our text. And so I want you to imagine this scene with me. There's a large crowd uh, that came into Jerusalem for the Passover feast, likely a couple hundred thousand people uh, in historic Jerusalem. Like there were, uh, there were likely booths and these pop-up carts kind of everywhere selling for the feast and all the sacrifices they had going on. The crowd, uh, they heard that Jesus was going to be there. Th this man that had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and many are excited and thrilled to see him because they believe like this is their guy. They think he's going to be the one to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. You know, I just think if I were there, I'd be hoping you do something really cool to watch, like uh, wondering who's he going to heal? Uh, what, what miracle is he going to do next? Like, is he going to kind of flap his wings and fly? Maybe is he going to, uh, is he going to like make someone disappear? Is he going to raise someone else from the dead? And then also, what's he going to do with these guys that are trying to kill him? Like, I'd be thinking this is going to be a scene to watch. Like, maybe we should get the popcorn out, pull up a chair and watch the show. Maybe if I lived during that time, knowing the tension of the day, though, maybe I'd be wondering, what's he going to do? Is he going to declare a political victory to take over the Roman rule? And I think it's fair to say that this political victory is what most people were hoping for. Because when Jesus comes, everybody takes palm branches, which was a, a Jewish national symbol, and starts waving them like flags. Uh, and they were, like, they, they were the nation's flags of their day, showing that they think they will have victory and deliverance from their Roman enemies, showing a lot of national pride, believing that their Messiah had come, thinking Jesus is going to be their king, thinking long live King Jesus. He's going to save the day. He's going to help us defeat the Roman rulers. But remember, they were thinking an earthly kingdom like their, king, their previous King David and their previous King Solomon. They were not thinking about a heavenly kingdom. And as they were waving their palm branches, shouting Hosanna, which means save, kind of like saying, Lord, save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, thinking God is going to reestablish their present day kingdom of Israel without any Roman influence. And I want you to think about this from a present day perspective. Thinking about what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. I mean, I just imagine if Russia took over Ukraine in about 10 years from now, let's just imagine that a guy uh, in Ukraine showed miraculous abilities that would totally change the landscape of Ukraine and free them. And everybody in Ukraine started shouting for this guy in the middle of Moscow, the Russian capital, saying, long live the king of Ukraine. Let's just, let's just say I don't think old Putin would be too happy like that's how crazy this political scene is right now. Everybody is shouting for Jesus, calling him the king of Israel. And then in comes Jesus, the king. But he's not riding on a massive military horse ready for battle like Alexander the Great did. No, but rather he comes in riding on a lowly donkey, showing and symbolizing that he was coming in peace and humility and meekness to build a different type of kingdom. 
You know, historically, whenever leaders came into a city on a donkey, it meant they were coming in peace. And that's what Jesus was doing here. He was showing that he was coming to bring peace, not a sword. And then with all of this, we saw the author of John quote from the prophet Zechariah from 500 years earlier. Uh, in verse 15, it's saying this, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The author was showing how Jesus was fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah. That he would come in as a humble Messiah, mounted on a donkey, bringing salvation. And so when Jesus comes in on a donkey, it shows two different things. One, it shows that he, was, he fulfilled prophecy. But two, it shows he was coming in humility and to also bring peace. Again, Jesus came in humility to bring peace. Showing God's kingdom was not going to be a kingdom built with swords and mighty horses. No, God's kingdom would be built in humility and in peace. And it would be a kingdom filled with peace. And as we see in verse uh, 16, this is not what they expected. You know, in verse 16, the author shows us that even his disciples were confused by this. They didn't get it until later uh, when they had one of those like aha moments when everything kind of clicked. Look at verse 16. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been, had been done to him. So none of, these, none of this made sense to the disciples until after his crucifixion and resurrection. It all clicked when they realized what Jesus was doing in this moment, which leads us to our first of two points today. Um, number one, Jesus didn't come bringing political power. He came bringing spiritual peace. To say this another way, Jesus didn't come to be their political savior uh, to save them from their chaotic outside world. No, he came to be their spiritual savior, saving them from the chaos inside of their hearts. I mean, just think about this event. These people, they knew their immediate political need for a political savior, waving their palm branches, their national flag, ex ex expecting a political victory to protect them and save them from conquering enemies. They felt the, the tension. They knew it. Again, they wanted a Messiah coming mounted on a horse with a sword in hand, crowned with rubies to reestablish the nation of Israel. But here's the deal. They thought their biggest problem was outside of them. They thought their biggest threat was being under Roman rule, being under King Herod, which yes, uh, it was a problem. They thought their greatest need for salvation was, were their external circumstances to be better and for the kingdom of Israel to be reestablished because with a new political kingdom, they thought came power and stability and prosperity. But Jesus knew their biggest problem was not outside of them. No, their biggest problem was inside of them. They were looking for a political savior to save them from the tyranny of unruly kings. But Jesus knew they needed a spiritual savior to save them from the tyranny of their spiritual war. They were losing a war and they didn't even know it. They were blinded to the state of their heart and soul and had no idea. But Jesus saw it. We can say it this way. Their greatest need wasn't external peace with the political king. No, their greatest need was for internal peace with their spiritual king. You see, this is so important for us to remember today because I know how often I myself can believe differently. Like I kid you not, as I was writing this, all of this, this past week, I got a phone call about my truck. It told me it was going to cost a lot of money to fix it. Like I just, they just punched me in the stomach amount of money. And in that moment, that seemed like the biggest problem in my life. I, I was not happy, and I'm still not happy about it. But you know what I know? 
These, th- these things happen to us all the time, like big things, small things, major life things, and they're not fun. And as I say that, I know what I'm about to say is still true, but it's hard and, ha- and hard to grasp. Because listen, our greatest problem today is not the state of our bank account. It's not what's going on with our kids. It's not what's going on with your job or school or friends or whatever decision or threat you may be facing outside of us. No, our greatest problem today is the spiritual war that is happening inside of us. Like when I got a call about my truck, my greatest problem was that my truck needed fixing. No, my greatest problem in that moment was that I found hope and security in my bank account and not in the God who holds all things together. Y'all, there are a million different things that can make us think our greatest problem is outside, out in the world. And I don't know what it is for you, but I'm confident that there's something that comes to mind. But again, the way in which Jesus came shows us that he did not come uh, primarily for our external circumstantial uh, problems, but rather he came for our internal heart problems. He came to be the king and the ruler of our hearts, not the king and ruler of our circumstantial kingdoms. But you know what? He does care about our circumstances. He just wants our hearts in them. I mean, we can say it this way. Jesus came to give us joyful hearts in our chaotic world. And we know this because as the Bible tells us, we all have a sin nature and an enemy that tempts us in various ways. And this shouldn't be hard for us to grasp. Like there, there isn't a soul on the planet that doesn't at some level realize something with this world is not right. Because every baby comes out of the womb with a level of emotional toil, screaming and crying, needing to be comforted. Like without a doubt, uh, we can all look around and in our own lives see and realize something just is not right. Cars break, babies cry, relationships are hard, and life just happens. And what the Bible calls that something that is not right is caused by the effects of sin. It's when we disobey God's design for our life and we try to recreate our own way of life outside of God's intended design. And in doing so, we make ourselves our own little gods. And in the process, we intentionally or maybe unintentionally dethrone the God that made us. Like we were made with the design and intention for God to be the king of our life. But because of our sin, we dethrone God and we place the crown on our head, making ourselves our own little kings and queens of our life. As if our limited wisdom is more insightful than God's infinite wisdom. New City, again, our sin struggle, the spiritual war we are waging against is our greatest problem in our life. And we think or believe otherwise, like I did with my truck, It's just simple evidence that our values have become misordered apart from God's values. And y'all, Christian or not, this happens to each of us every single day. But New City, guess what? We have good news. God sees our misordered lives. God sees how we've placed the crown on our head. He sees how we think our wisdom is better than God's wisdom. And you know what? He came for us anyways. God sees our rebellion, he sees our foolishness, and yet he still sent his son Jesus to come and die for us. I mean, y'all just think about this. In the gospel, we know that Jesus came down to rescue us and to save us, to reunite us back to God. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, and in doing so, we have a way back to God. That's part one of the good news of the gospel. Our sin separates us from God and Jesus at the cross gives us a way back through his death, burial, and resurrection to be reunited back with God through believing in him. Like that's good news. 
God sees our rebellion and he came after us anyways to rescue us and reunite us back to God. But part two of the gospel that often gets left out that we can't forget is that God then comes into our hearts and empowers us and lives within us. Again, again, Jesus came to be the king of our heart. And guess what he does as the king of our heart? He brings peace. Because with Jesus, we know that he never leaves us or forsakes us. He stands by us at all times. He encourages our hearts and souls. He strengthens us by his word and his spirit. He counsels us and provides peace for us. And guess what? In the process, he changes us and he comforts us and he heals us. I mean, let's, like, let's just let that sit for a second. The part of the gospel that is often most neglected is the power that's found in the gospel for our lives right now. Yes, the gospel saves us for later, but it also empowers us and heals us and it helps us right now. Like whatever your greatest problem is outside of you right now, kind of like my truck was this past week. Listen, because of the gospel, we can know and trust that God is with us the entire way and he sees it and knows about it and he cares about it. Like, I know without a shadow of a doubt that if you are in Christ, he loves you dearly. He knows the cries and desires of your heart, and he wants to give you what's best for you. But do you know what else I know? Do you know what he cares most about? (laughs) Again, it's the state of our heart. He wants us to trust him and walk with him and worship him and find peace with him, no matter the outside dilemma. Because may we not forget the healing and comforting nature of the gospel that says to us, God is with us. It reminds us that we're loved, that we're God's beloved, that there's nothing that we can do that can separate us from God's love. And yes, Jesus, he is a victorious warrior king that comes fighting and waging war, crushing the enemies of the darkness. But do you know how he goes to war, waging war on our hearts? When Jesus comes into our hearts, We can see and know from our text today that he's not come in with a sword and a javelin with might and power to crush us to pieces. No, Jesus comes in just like he did riding on a donkey. And he comes in gently and humbly (laughs) bringing peace. Jesus, the king of God's kingdom, came in humility bringing peace. And so let me ask, do you know this peace? Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? Maybe you came in today and you're not a Christian. And let me lovingly tell you as gently as I possibly can that without a doubt, your greatest problem right now is that you are separated from God for eternity. And as graciously and as lovingly as I can say this, that apart from trusting in Jesus, you are heading on a path towards hell. And there, there will be no peace whatsoever. Yes, Jesus came to bring peace, but apart from Jesus, there is no peace. And believe me, me saying this and what I'm about to say is just as hard for me to say as it is for you to hear, but the Bible describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where peace does not exist. And apart from trusting in Jesus... That's the final destination of every person who does not trust in Jesus. But know this, when Jesus came riding in on a donkey, that was him declaring to a broken world that he came offering peace. 
And so I'm pleading with you to know that God has peace to offer to you both in this life and infinitely more in the next. But apart from trusting in Jesus, true peace cannot and will not be found. And so I want to urge you, put your faith in Jesus today and tell someone, tell me, tell the person you came with, tell someone, please. And listen, if you're a Christian here today, we have more good news Because just like they were waving the palm branches in victory before Jesus defeated sin and death at the cross, we today, if we have trusted in Jesus, we can live in victory today. We can live in a way that knows the war has already been won. And you know what happens when we live this way? Knowing the victory is already ours, God brings peace into our hearts. Because no matter what you're facing today, no matter what problem is ahead of you, guess what? Jesus sees it. Jesus knew it was coming and he has a path forward for you. And guess what? If you are in Christ, that path is victory or an eventual victory when we see him face to face. The path is filled with palm branches that wave victoriously. And as Jesus walked through it with humility, with that victory, there is peace to be found. So again, number one, Jesus didn't come for political power. He came to bring spiritual peace. Let's keep moving and read the next portion of scripture to get to our last point, showing us more of what kingdom movers look like. Look starting in verse 20 as the scene kind of shifts here. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethesda in, in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So I want to stop there for a second as a bit of a commercial break and just point out something really quick that's a little bit separated from our main idea. You know, as we just read, a few Greeks, they were looking for Jesus, and they found uh, some of Jesus' disciples, Andrew and Philip, and they told him they wanted to see Jesus, and then Jesus said something in verse 23 that I want to point out. Look what it says. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to come to be glorified. So up to this point in the book of John, the author has been saying Jesus' hour has not yet come, speaking of his death. But here, Jesus is saying the hour has come. Essentially saying like, it's go time. Jesus knows his death is near. It's coming soon. This is the turning point in the gospel of John. Jesus just came in riding on a donkey with people saying he would be king and then the tides turn and he's no longer hiding. His death is near. And we now know, like I said earlier, we're five days from Jesus hanging on a cross. So so Jesus just came in riding on a donkey with people shouting Hosanna, shouting save us, save us King Jesus. And here Jesus now says the hour is here, knowing he will save his people but not with a sword and a crown of rubies, but rather with nail-pierced hands and a crown of thorns. So again, Jesus is a humble king, building a different type of kingdom. King Jesus doesn't kill to be king. He was killed to be the king of our hearts. Look what he says next in verses 24 to 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant be also. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. These three verses are packed full of truth. And remember, our main idea is that kingdom movers model after God's humble king. And here we see how kingdom movers move, modeling after the humble king, Jesus. So our first point, we saw that kingdom movers have spiritual peace, but here we're seeing the way in which God makes his people uh, kind of movers and shakers of God's kingdom. And I, I think it's fair to say it's not what we think when we think of being kingdom movers, like there's something exciting that comes to mind, like kind of being like a mover and a shaker in the business world, uh, like we're making something happen. But what Jesus just said in verse 24 to 26, it's a hard pill to swallow. It's talking about death. I mean, how exciting. In verse 24, Jesus tells a short parable about a grain of wheat dying and then bears fruit, hinting at something about how death equals life. And it makes sense in agriculture, but how does this make sense, uh, how, how, how does this make sense for this idea of being kingdom movers uh, that build and advance God's kingdom? You know, we saw in our first point that Jesus is a humble king that brings peace, but now we have to ask, what does this look like for us? When verse 26, or verse 25, excuse me, maybe this will make more sense. What it says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's kind of like, okay, Jesus, uh, what are you saying here? This seems like another one of those riddles. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Like, what's the punchline here? So let's try to make sense of this and break this down. Verse 24, Jesus uh, just said, uh, from death comes life. And so in essence, Jesus is saying we need to die to ourselves, that life comes through death, which leads us to our second point. And last point, Jesus modeled that full life comes through death. And in the gospel, I think this makes sense. Like our eternal life comes through Jesus's death. We gain access to full life through the cross where Jesus died Again, Jesus died to give us his life, which helps make sense of verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus' death brought much fruit. But for us, there is more to this than simply salvation in the next life. Yes, salvation is of utmost importance. We gain eternal life through Jesus' death, but we're selling ourselves short if we miss the fullness of what Jesus is saying here. Because there is life for us right now. Yes, there is eternal life coming after our physical death, but there is life on this earth through a process of dying to ourselves. Not physically dying, but dying to our fleshly desires. In essence, full life in Christ comes through a process of death, of putting things in our life to death. We can say it this way, kingdom movers die to themselves. And what Jesus is getting at is that we can miss the life that Jesus has for us if we love our life. And I know this sounds strange. And let, let's make clear what Jesus is not saying, okay? He's not saying if we enjoy our life, we will miss what Jesus has for us. Because yes, Jesus does want us to have joy. He does want us to enjoy our life. He gives us the lights and desires that are good and to be enjoyed. Jesus is saying here, in essence, if our wants and desires are above God's wants and desires, then we'll miss the full life God has for us. I've said this in the past and I'll say it again. It's not that our desires are all bad. It's that our desires get misordered. For example, we can have desires to be safe, secure, and comfortable, which let me say they're good desires. 
But we also need to remember, Jesus often calls us to things that require risk and a lack of security and discomfort from the world's perspectives. And if our desires get placed over God's desires, then we're missing the full life that Jesus has for us. Because y'all, there's nothing in the Bible that says our life as Christians should be easy, comfortable, and we always get what we want. No, the Christian life is a life of constant sacrifices, but it leads to more life and it leads to joy. Because when our life is not about us and first about God and then others, when we make our priorities to love God and love people, the result is full life. And I know it seems counterintuitive, but this is the way of God's kingdom. This is the way God designed us to live. And let me tell you, constantly living for our own desires and wants, it is a surefire way to discontentment. Husbands, we're called to lay down our life for our wives. We're called to die to ourselves and lay down our wants and preferences for their wants and preferences. Wives, on the other side, you're called to die to yourself, lay down your wants and preferences and follow your husband's lead. If we're praying that our church would be a leadership factory, sending out leaders all over the world, then this is essential. May we be as a church filled with people that reject the my way or the highway mentality. But rather, may we be known for how we die to ourselves and consider others as more significant than ourselves. You know, God has called each and every one of us to share our faith and make disciples. Like that's not optional in the Christian life. It's not based on personality or gifting. No, it's a command. If sharing our faith doesn't come natural, we're still called to lay down our life, our desires and our preferences and share our faith. Again, the way to full life in Jesus is not through following whatever desires we may have and asking God to then bless them. No, the way to full life in Jesus is seeking God's desire for our life, submitting to those ways and following them. Very simply put, Jesus' desire for your life is for you to worship him, abide in him, and to walk in his ways. Jesus' desire for you are to read his word, be consistent in Christian community, to serve, to pray, to be generous, to share your faith. Like these things always come first. And you know what? In order to be in God's word, we have to die to our desires to sleep in or watch TV or scroll on social media. In order to serve, we have to die to our time desires. In order to give generously, we have to die to our material desires. Like the Christian life regularly puts our desires to death and yields to God's desires. And again, I want to be careful here. Because I also know that God gives us good desires for vocation and relationships uh, and where we live, as well as many other things that are good for us. But what if God is calling you to put to death maybe your career in order to be more missional in your community or, or maybe spend more time with your family? Or maybe he's not. That's where community comes in to help us think through these things and navigate these things. Maybe, for, maybe it's for a season, maybe it's not. God gives us wisdom and conviction to be used for his good purposes. But the question is, are we willing to die to our own desires to follow the Lord's desires? Maybe God is calling you to get new friends and spend time with those who are following Jesus because the people you spend most of your time with, maybe they're bringing you down. Like, are you willing to die to yourself? If the Spirit of God is leading us to do something that we need to walk, then we need to walk in obedience and do it. And if we're nervous about it, talk with our discipleship groups about it and have them pray with you about this. You know, I, have, I pray often that we would have a church full of just uh, people with crazy faith that are more willing to follow the Spirit's leading that doesn't make sense to the world than to follow the world's wisdom. 
Like if God is calling you to something that seems crazy and ridiculous, making a crazy fat sacrifice for the mission of God, maybe like moving into an unreached neighborhood or to adopt a child or to go and preach in prisons or to quit your job and forego a normal job and raise support and reach, help us reach USF or, or to move across the world or to go and labor among the unreached people group, then I want to call you to seriously pray about it and talk to your community of people and do it. Again, I want you to know you don't have to do this alone. We as a church want to come around you and love you and support you and encourage you and pray through this with you. Y'all, we need each other in this process of just continually laying down our life. We weren't meant to do this life alone. Again, the most full life you can live is to lay down your life and follow the Lord's leading. And just maybe this simply means right now you simply commit yourselves just gathering regularly on Sundays or getting into a group during the week so that we can get to know you and walk this life with you. Look at our last uh, verse, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So Jesus just said, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, but where Jesus is, there his servant will be also. So very simply put, to say this a different way and a little bit more directly, those who follow the Lord serve the Lord. Like they're one and the same. We can't follow the Lord and not be led to serve the Lord because when we follow Jesus, it's a call to die to ourselves. And when we die to ourselves, we serve God and people. And as we just read in verse 26, when we serve the Lord and not ourselves, when we follow God and not our own desires, Jesus says... The Father will honor us. Like honor is given to those who serve. Like just let that sit. Husbands, serve your wives. Wives, serve your husbands. Friends, serve one another. Brothers and sisters, serve each other. Serve the church. Serve your community because honor is given to those who serve. And again, it's not saying we're going to have an awesome life because we serve. But when we lay down our life and serve the Lord and not ourselves, God honors that and brings peace and joy. He fills our hearts with contentment. You know, I told you at the very beginning of our time, I truly believe God is moving in powerful ways among us. I believe that God is going to do crazy things over the next year to reach USF. I believe God is going to help us reach and enlist 30 new families this year. I believe that our young pros will be filled with an awesome community that, call, uh, that calls our city to more. I really believe we'll be able to reach retirees in the Tampa Bay area. But you know what else I know? It will only happen if the Spirit of God comes down upon the hearts of our people, including myself, and brings us an overflowing peace that allows us to die to ourselves and pursue God's desire and mission and serve God and not ourselves. You know, me and my wife, every few months, we ask ourselves, just as a checkpoint, are we doing whatever we can to lay down our life for the Lord? Is our life about us or about the Lord? And to be frank with you, I know it's really easy for me to make my life about me. And so we need these constant realignments in our life. I mean, just think about how an airplane that's one degree off target when they, stop, stop, when they start, if they don't correct themselves, they'll end up flying hundreds or thousands of miles off of their intended target. Like we need to constantly and regularly be realigning our hearts with the Lord and, to take, and it takes a continual dying to ourselves to do that. 
You know, I really believe this. Like I said at the beginning, I really believe we're on the brink of seeing God do something amazing. Maybe I'm crazy, maybe I'm not. But with what I see happening among us, I can't help but believe God is up to something. And so let me ask, what is God calling you to sacrifice to live on mission during this season? And the last two things to end our time today. The first is just simply serving here on Sundays. I know I just said those who follow the Lord serve the Lord. And I know that doesn't only mean serving on Sundays. Like we serve our friends, families, campus ministries. There are tons of different ways to serve the Lord. But I also know it doesn't exclude Sundays. And so let me give you a peek into the window of New City. Okay? We don't want you to serve because we need you to serve. Are there things that we can do to make things better with more people? Yes, absolutely. And we've got those things planned. But listen, the reason we want you to serve is because it's for your good. It's a small and easy step of dying to ourselves and it helps us build community and and to be known here. Serving is more for you than it is for us. Serving on Sundays is not our end goal for you. God propelling you into his mission is the end goal and serving is the first step for us to learn the gifts God has given you that can be used for God's kingdom. And so let me just simply ask, can you help us discover your gifts by serving with us on Sundays? Like this is not for us, this is for you and for the kingdom. And then lastly, we've got serve week coming up. Starts in about seven or eight days. And so if you haven't signed up, sign up today. Today is the day, but let's just dream about this. Let's dream about serve serve week. What could it look like when over a hundred people lay down a few hours of one week and serve our community to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We've got seven different opportunities all week long. And so will you sign up to serve? You know, just like we saw in verse 24, when the grain of wheat dies, it bears much fruit. And so let's just dream what fruit can come when we die to ourselves and serve the Lord. Because this new city, because uh, new city, this is the way God builds his kingdom. Let's pray. God, we love you. God, we need you. God, we're thankful for the spirit of God coming into our hearts. God, I pray that if there are people among us that are not walking with the Lord, Father, I pray that they would give up their life today and follow the Lord's leading. God, you are a miracle worker. Father, we're praying for the spirit of God to come in and and pierce the hearts of people to save them. God, we pray that we would be a people that, are, that die to ourselves regularly, that serve regularly. God, you're working and moving among us. God, will we continue to lay down our life at the foot of the cross? We know that it all comes in your power. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.